Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Glenn Stallsmith. Glenn is a pastor who serves two United Methodist churches in rural North Carolina. He's also a Ph.D. student at Duke Divinity School. For 12 years, he lived in the Philippines, working as an ethnomusicologist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's also the reviews editor of Global Forum on Arts and Christian Faith. I give you Glenn Stallsman. Glenn, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm not just uh, an occasional guest, but I'm also a fan. I, I listen every week, uh, uh, even when I'm not on. And I have to say, you've had some really great guests lately. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, Yeah, we, we've had uh, Heidi Hankel, who is a RCA minister last week, who was serving in a Presbyterian congregation. And Greg Strawbridge, the week before that, who's another fascinating guy. So yeah, we've had some good, good guests. You had that crossover, a couple crossover episodes with the strangely warmed guys. We had some right? crossovers. Yeah, we did, yeah. we did that too. Yeah, so we're yeah. Uh, we're on a roll. So Glenn, the pressure's all on you, dude. Yeah, like, you I'm know. feeling like a little fish in a big pond, Scott. You're just a fish in a normal, normal pond. But, you know, it's interesting because, like, all streaks, right, come to an end. So it's like it's <laughs> it's just, right. you know, the pressure. It's the problem when you're on a roll. It, it, you know, this is, uh, this is the nature of the beast. So no speak. pressure. Yeah. So our first reading is Isaiah 62, 1 through 5. And God is assuring Israel here that he will not keep silent and will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation is like a burning torch. And the nations will see it. They'll be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And they'll be crowned with beauty. And no more termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. So that's, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because biblical naming is so significant. Like, I feel like when we name people today, oftentimes we don't, it's not quite as, as significant of a epic or a period in, in, in the, our family story, our nation story or something. But in the Bible, names are significant. And, and it seems as though it's as if Israel has these awful monikers functionally because they've been in exile. Yeah, the, the version of the scriptures that I have in front of me is just full of footnotes. All, all of these names you know, point down to the bottom of the page with the Hebrew term, um, a lot of which most of us are unfamiliar with. But but one that stands out is uh, uh, the word for married in verse four, which is Beulah. And uh, I'm a little bit too young to be in the in in the demographic that 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 sang and talked about Beulah land. But uh, I still have memories of that. That was still around when I was growing up. And I think some listeners and some people uh, that will hear us preach this week will connect with that word anyway. It means married. Yeah, and there, I've seen a lot of churches called like the Beulah Presbyterian Church, or the yeah. So the Beulah is uh, is something that winds up in church monikers sometimes. An appropriate text for uh, the season after Epiphany. This first verse talks about God speaking. I will not keep silent. So um, also the image of salvation being shown to the nations uh, with the image of a of a torch. So um, 
so we have this this idea of God's word going out, seen and heard uh, to people of all nations, center ground zero point being Jerusalem, people of Israel, but in order to bless all the peoples of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And it's interesting because that's such a, there's, um, did Francis Schaeffer write a book? God is there and he is not silent. That that, that sounds right. I haven't read a title for a book. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't either, but I just remember that. I just remember the title of the book, but but that is like a thing that you, you can understand Israel feeling that way. And we understand many people feel that way, that, that God seems silent, right? That it seems like there's, you know, in the midst of tragedies or struggles or existential doubts and things like this, that sometimes this can be a real reality for people, God seeming silent. So it's, it's interesting that God's promise here is that he will not uh, take the fifth. He will, he will not, he will not, he will not, uh, he will not remain silent. And that's often, I think people's prayer, you know, that, uh, you know, that God would, could speak, would speak and, and that that speech would bring hope. And that hope is fulfilled in this extravagant love with the, with the bridegroom metaphor that we have in these verses, which I assume is why this is paired with the John 2 text that's the anchor gospel reading for, for this Sunday. I would imagine it's that uh, wedding connection, um, which, which automatically raises all sorts of questions about how you preach that and and how ancient wedding practices and and ancient um uh, mar- marriage agreements and covenants work today and and how some of those things will work and some of them won't um as you as you try to to move across culture and across time it's almost like a Jane Austen novel in, in the sense that everything's moving towards a final happy glorious union where where bride and groom are married um which in some places and in some times, that's great. That's a great fulfillment. 21st century America might be a slightly different context. Um, and I think I heard on one of your other podcasts recently about uh, a statistic where where like the happiest people in American society are divorced women and married men. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's really interesting. Right. That's, it's a curious statistic. <laughs> so, so anyway, just to, just to muddy the waters a little bit and to show that, that not everybody in a, in 21st century America is looking for marriage to be an ultimate fulfillment. Um, it, it is a nice metaphor for some, it won't work. It's interesting. I was reading in, in uh, mockingbird does, it has a devotional, which if, if our listeners haven't seen it or heard, it's a great devotional. And um, the issue, the entry for May 2nd is on this passage and is written by uh, Bonnie Zoll, and she says, she says this. She says, by changing, when God renames people, He creates a new hope, something stretching much further beyond who they've known themselves to be. By changing their names, He changes their lives. Although names seem to possess less inherent meaning today, we still wish to be known as people whose lives mean something. We strive to maximize the positive traits by which we are known and minimize the jeopardizing ones. And sometimes we wish we were someone else altogether. We are not usually completely happy with who we are. We know what we lack, yet we also lack the means to really change it. It's hard for us to render a new name in any sustainable or significant way. And yet the old story of a new hope is true for us. You should be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And I think that's interesting that, that while we might not identify with the name thing, it, 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 yeah, the, the connection to significance and identity with names, we, we still have that yearning for meaningful identity. And it always comes in relationship with others. That significance is necessarily conferred on us in some network of relationship, whether that's a, a, a marriage relationship or whether it's a family 
or or a community or or a church. Yeah, that's a really good word. Yeah, it's interesting because usually when it, it's that sense of significance is always external, but if you get it from other people, it's always fleeting, and it seems like it it can be with strings attached. Uh, but the, with God, it's not fleeting, right? It, it's and yet we often have to be like at the end of our rope to look for the 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 naming the significance given with no strings attached from from God. Yeah. And and if if a preacher really wants to explore that idea in this passage, a great companion text would be those first few chapters of Hosea, where where his children are named, um, not necessarily complimentary names, but um, it would. It, it gives that theme of God's relationship with the people, like a husband and wife, children as offspring, and God's naming of them. So, something to play with. Yeah, yeah. My name is. My name is. Liam Saney. My name is. What? My name is. My name is. Liam Saney. My name is. My name is. My name is. Liam Saney. My name is. On to. First Corinthians, we have a reading here from chapter 12 about spiritual gifts and Paul wanting them to not be uninformed. And he has that great phrase in this passage that no one can, by the Spirit of God, ever says, Jesus, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about, you know, there are many gifts with the same Spirit and how you know, these things are, he lists a variety of gifts and how they're all activated by the same Spirit who lots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. So here we go. Yeah. Gifts, spiritual and, gifts. And this season of Ordinary Time After Epiphany opens up uh, an opportunity to preach on First Corinthians for quite a number of weeks. I think it goes from chapter 12 through chapter 15. And since Easter is so late this year and and Lent doesn't start until March, this really is a year which gives you an opportunity. So if you want to make a sermon series out of 1 Corinthians and start this week, this is a time to do it. And an interesting connection with the way Paul starts out this chapter 12, which is indeed a, a break, a new section heading uh, within the within the letter, because he starts it out by saying, now concerning, which is always which is what Paul uses in, in his letter to the Corinthians to signal that he's moving on to a new topic. So he's just in chapters 8 through 11 talked about the Lord's Supper and abuses there. And now in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And so now we have an extended treatment about how we interact. And and he immediately starts talking about speaking, which is where we just um, heard about God speaking to the people of Israel in, in Isaiah 62. So there's an interesting tie in there. And, and it seems like the important gifts that Paul's discussing all have something to do with speech. Yeah, and it's interesting too the contrast when they were pagans and they were led astray by idols who do, do not, not speak. speak. Yep. You know, the idols. Yeah, they they well that's just an interesting image like worshiping and being led astray by these spiritual uh these things that are spiritually empty and lifeless and yet, you know, their inability to speak is is you know, in contrast to the one who speaks through his people. That's right, and it's the same spirit that speaks. And so you have this extended treatment through these next few verses and chapters where this whole idea of unity in the same spirit does not preclude diversity of expression in unique ways and different giftings, which is one of the biggest mysteries of the church, is how you are united in one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, 
And yet that doesn't at all mean that God's creativity is restrained or reined in, but rather somehow that unity allows for greater diversity. Yeah. And I think what's interesting in this list of gifts is so often that things that we think everybody should have, right? Like, oh, we all should be, like we do the sermon series on, you know, the key to having a, a vibrant faith or the key to real wisdom. And and some of these things, it's, Paul says, wow, these are gifts. So like, we wouldn't expect everyone to be wise, or we wouldn't expect everyone to have the gift of faith. That There would be people who are in the body saying Jesus is Lord, and yet they struggle um, to, with faith, even though, they're, even though their very presence is, you know, in worship, you know, in confession, is a sign that clearly the Spirit is there, you know, and because and, you can't say Jesus is Lord except by that Spirit. So it's a very interesting, I think sometimes we take, we, it becomes really oppressive when we expect everybody to have certain gifts, you know. Yeah, I remember talking to a friend who worked for a pastor and my friend was relating to me that this pastor really believed in spiritual gifts and he preached on on them frequently and he also believed that he had all of them <laughs> <laughs> which like you said can be a very very oppressive and and i think a lot of times how this teaching is used is it's paired with similar passages in romans um and and i forget where the other list is off the top of my head and and then there's like a like that's the canonical list like those are the spiritual gifts and there's all kind of spiritual gift inventories and kind of tests and self-evaluations that we can take or give to lay people. Um, and I don't think Paul ever meant for this to be a, a restrictive list as if this was an exhaustive set and only these that are listed here in these epistles uh, can be considered to be the spiritual gifts. Yeah. That's like people, some of the founding fathers, with the amendments like the Bill of Rights were hesitant to include the Bill of Rights because they thought, well, if we list them out, people are going to think these are the only rights yeah. we're allowed to have. Like, yeah, good. <laughs> you know, once we see a list like that, we we almost always assume it's exhaustive mm-hmm. or something, right? Something about human nature. Yep. And nor nor are they necessarily discrete. And yeah, these are overlapping sets of gifts, I think. And and I think, yeah, right, right, right. So yeah, and it, and it's cause for you. Un- I mean, it's interesting too because people, it, it, this invariably happens too, right? People we're often we often think that what we're gifted in is the most important or is the most significant or is the thing that really and so that you know i mean i think paul's saying here that it's it's probably this is probably going on in the corinthian church right people have these gifts that are sort of expressive and what we might call charismatic or something i think they're they're sort of top tier or top shelf and paul's like no no that's not the case at all and maybe just a, a word of warning uh, that I think works in general, not just with this passage, but across the scriptures. Anytime you try to reduce the work of God to a chart, be careful. God's creativity is much more abundant. Exactly. Although than dis- that. Yep. dispensational charts are, cre- are very entertaining to me. Well, they're yeah. fun, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah they, they might not contain much truth, <laughs> yeah, but they're right. they're fun. <laughs> So on to the gospel reading here. This is such a great story. The wedding of Cana, John 2. We have the this the first miracle story in John. And it, John's interesting, right, compared to the other gospels, because he's got fewer of these kinds of stories. And he usually uh, explains them all. He doesn't explain this one. 
The other six major signs stories or get explanations, unlike the synoptics where very often something happens and like you think of the guy that's healed where Jesus kind of takes him outside the village and puts mud on his eyes mm-hmm. and, and he says, I see, but it looks like everything looks like trees walking or like he, you know, there's no explanation for any of that, right? <laughs> no. But John tends to, t- tends to explain, but he doesn't do it here. And it's interesting because the first miracle here is not uh, some uh, born out of some human tragedy or healing. It's actually the, uh, the, the, the host of a wedding feast runs out of wine. Yeah, it's just a, a very mundane thing in the middle of a glorious and wonderful event, presumably. There's, like you said, there's nothing broken. There's nothing that needs fixed other than they ran out of the stuff that, that they meant to have, um, which I, I think helps reflect back to the abundance and the creativity and, and the grace that God shower, showers upon the people as described in verses like Isaiah 62, uh, where, where, where God is making things right and making even making good things better. Um, yeah, and like you said, this um, John is is unique in 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 many ways. This this wedding at Cana is not reflected in the synoptics. Cana itself is not mentioned in the synoptics, and it and it comes up twice here in John. Here's the first occasion, but then the the second miracle, or, or sorry, the second sign that Jesus did is at the end of chapter four, which is the only other place where Cana is mentioned. It's where Jesus heals the official's son. So these chapters two through four clearly create some kind of bracket um, and are probably some of people's favorite scriptures. You've got John three, you know, Nicodemus coming at night. You must be born again. People love that. And you have chapter four with him speaking with the woman at the well, um, which is, has some of the best verses in all of scripture. So um, John starts with a flourish here and and this sign at Cana is 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 a wonderful uh advent of, of this season of Jesus life. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because if John 1 is seems to allude to Genesis mm-hmm. 1, it seems like this le- alludes to Genesis 2 where God is blessing, you know, the male and female and here Jesus is the first cre- the new creation is at a wedding, right? And and you know the the eschatological hope, the messianic bank, banquet, is like a wedding feast. You know that that in the Book of Revelation we have images of a of of we, of, a, of of God's new creation being like a, a consummated betrothal. You know the, the the church is the bride, we wait the bridegroom. So it's interesting. You have a sort of seeming uh, new creation story here, as well as you know in the kind of new creation language that you get in John chapter one. Yeah, and this is all about timing as well. Um, when when Mary, we presume it's Mary, right? She's never named in the Gospel of John. Interesting trivial fact. Um, she's just called the mother of Jesus. But when she comes to him and says, I need you to do something here, he says, my time has not yet come. And and so even though he shows some flexibility here, he's able to move on from plan A to plan B and, and fulfill the, the desires of his mother and others who are there. There's still this sense that this is not yet the right time. My hour has not yet come. Um, so you, again, you have all these. I if I have images of fulfillment, um, season after epiphany of of manifestation, of realization, of uncovering uh, already not yet kind of realities. There's a lot. There's a lot to play with there. 
Yeah, it's interesting too that one of the things I think that often is well, first off, what I think is funny is there's this like kind of joke at the host's expense. Like, wow, most people, <laughs> uh, you know, save the best wine for for life. So it's so this idea that like, wow, the wine that they were drinking was really put to shame by what Jesus created, which is just kind of funny, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting, but for people that. It's sort of like John also, I think, often does things like at two levels, like where Nicodemus, where he says you have to be born again, and Nicodemus is like, well, how can I go back in my mother's room? And it's almost like a double level here too. That like if if you know like what's going on, you know God's really working here. It's not just a thing of the host. Like 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 the 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 servant or the steward seems to make the joke, and then that's at sort of the surface level of interpretation, right? But but really, what you know is that this this wine is is divine provision. Yeah. Uh, not just to sort of the the sort of surprising stroke of of a host. Yeah, that's really good. And then you know, there's a, there's there's also ideas about who knows what here, and who was aware of what's going on. Um, Jesus' mother, Jesus himself, the disciples, the host. Um, lot, yeah, lots of levels working there. That's that's really good insight. It's interesting too that a lot of people want to make this make the point of how there's these purification jars and that the wine is in contrast to the to the water and, and that the water in the purification jars represents the law or something but really it, it seems that that's not what John is saying right he's saying that that it, the best wine follows not water but inferior wine yeah <laughs> so like so God's provision of salvation for his people before the coming of Jesus was in the symbolism here probably wine not water right so that so uh and you get this sort of is this consistent kind of with the prologue of John like that Jesus what Jesus makes available is grace in addition to grace meaning that the mosaic dis- set up was already there was a grace there but the salvation brought by Jesus was the fullness of grace the real thing you know the the uh the the 80 proof stuff um, right. <laughs> that's just interesting because because it, I oftentimes at times I think it's preached that way and it kind of messes the metaphor. It does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's, just, let's stay away from supersessionism. That's really good. Yeah, exactly. It's funny. There's this Kierkegaard quote too of Christ turned water into wine, but the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult. It has turned wine into water. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. We tend to do that. <laughs> May it not yeah, be so right? for preachers this week. Kind of, exactly. May you, yeah, but this is a great story. I mean, it's a, it's a great. I think it's a it's a really. It, there's a lot to celebrate here, and I think part of it too is just is also that Jesus. This sign is an affirmation of marriage, an affirmation of life, an affirmation of of partying, an affirm. Like there's this. It, it's not a kind of austere. It's not an austere Jesus here. It's it's. He says, you know, I've come to that you might have life and have it in abundance, and that's I think what we what we see here, right? Like abundant life. Yeah, and I think. Yeah, you're right. And I, and I think there is such a tendency for us to to get into this mindset that God can only work when we've broken something, that that salvation is only about fixing what we've done wrong. And it's certainly an important component, but God can certainly work at all times, regardless of what we've done. Yeah. Um, yeah. What? A, yeah, this is a great story of God's abundance. In the, to sum up our discussion here, this in, in, the, in the lectionary commentary by Erdman's, which has, you know, three volumes, and each volume is like the first, second, third reading. On the first reading, this guy, Andrew Bartlett, who's the commentator, says this about the first reading, but it's so beautiful, it's sort of a sum up. Early indications of his person and message through proclamation, through acts of healing, 
and even through a sign such as the wedding at Cana led to expectations that seemed crushed by the cross. Yet God's ultimate plan and the full manifestation of his glory will not be deterred. Baptized into both the death and resurrection of Christ, God's people receive a new name and with it a new identity. Celebrating a marriage feast even greater than that at Cana, God's people are given to drink a wine far greater than any made with ordinary human hands. And even amidst the disappointments and unrealized eschatology of life in a not-so-good land, we anticipate a yet more glorious day when the new Jerusalem will appear as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Mm, Nice. So if you want to preach all three texts, there it is. is. (laughs) Go get that commentary. (laughs) Glenn, thanks so much for talking with me and blessings in your preaching. Thanks, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. You can find his stuff at MeaningfulWorship.Blogspot.Com. And thanks to you again for listening. Till next time, friends, fare thee well.